Mr. President, as you heard, we are uh, beginning the book of Hebrews, and uh, that sermon this morning, I, I, I had a sense that Pastor Murray was uh, speaking on the subject of communication, how God has communicated with men, and we did talk, so I knew that he would be ending in Hebrews, and I would be beginning Hebrews, and we're going to be studying Hebrews from now, um, hopefully till Passover, we might go a little bit over Passover, but it is amazing, as I said in the prayer, uh, just how everything is converging. And, and clearly God wants us to be thinking about uh, what's in Hebrews. I, I was thinking of it more from the perspective of how Hebrews brings out how great Jesus Christ is. And I thought if we study Hebrews through to Passover, when we actually take the Passover, we would take it with a richer understanding of just how great a high priest we have in Christ. But as uh, Pastor Murray was speaking this morning, I think there are other messages that God wants us to understand. So we're going to go. Through, we're going to start the book of Hebrews today. And um, I was talking to Jan in the week, and he's, he got stuck on the title Hebrews. So before we even get into the book, he's thinking about why is it called Hebrews. And actually, I don't. I wonder, Jan, if you don't mind just talking a little bit about your thoughts just around the title. You know what I find it very interesting is at the beginning of the book is entitled to the Hebrew. And can everybody hear? Can you hear me? Why don't you come up, Jan? Why don't you come up for a second? So I was trying to study this book, but I couldn't go beyond just the title. I was looking at the title of the book, it says to Hebrews. So I was wondering why doesn't it say to the Jews or why doesn't it say to the Israelites? It says to the Hebrew. So you see, it's got a message to the Jewish Christians right away from the beginning. It's entitled to the Hebrews. And, and you know, it's wonder why. And the only thing I can figure it out, it would go back all the way to Abraham. And you remember Abraham, his descent, his descent was from the Ibar or Habar, something like that, which actually means immigrant, right? Something like that, to, to escape, to immigrate. And also, Abraham made the choice, you know, made the choice when God, speak to, when God talked to him, he made the choice actually to leave his home leave his father's place, leave his town, and to leave his inheritance and just move in a totally different place. He had this faith in God that God, allowed, that God allowed him to, you know. And what this book speaks at the beginning, just by the title to the Hebrew Christians, to the Jewish Christians, it says, follow Father Abraham. Don't get stuck in Judaism, follow Abraham. So I think it's a great message for us, just right away from the title right there. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Deacon Jan. So, so I missed that, because I went right into the first verse. But I think that really does set the context that, that Hebrews, it's about movement, not getting stuck. And, and the Jews were at risk of being stuck in Judaism. And so right at the outset, having the title to the Hebrews, it, it, it communicates something right away. Can I just have a word? Sure, yes. Just like, like, you know, coming from a Polish room, you know, you're a Catholic, right? I wasn't a Catholic, but let's say you're a Catholic. And someday somebody will learn God's truth. So you have to leave your nation, your culture, your Catholic religion, and you move somewhere else, there is no protection, there's nothing, you have to totally rely on God. So that's what the Jewish Christians have to leave the temple behind, temple priesthood behind, all the writings almost, like, you know, they have to believe in Jesus Christ. So that's how difficult it was for them to forget about the roots and move into some promised land that they, they were so unknown, just like Father Abraham. So I think we all experience in our life the same thing. We came from our you know, culture, from our tradition, there was a time and point in our life that we had just to say goodbye and move on. Very good. So that's the title. The next then is the author who wrote the book of Hebrews. And unlike other epistles, 
Uh, Hebrews doesn't begin with an introduction. It just goes straight into the message. And as a result, people are not clear on who wrote the book. Uh, there is some controversy and various opinions about who wrote it. Some of the leading options, number one is the Apostle Paul. Many people believe it was the Apostle Paul who wrote it. Others say there is evidence that he did not write it, in fact. They believe that Luke wrote it, and the reason for Luke is Luke was a very educated Greek. And the language in Hebrews, you know, the New Testament is written in Greek, but the Greek in Hebrews is very sophisticated. It's very advanced Greek compared to the other letters. So they feel like it's not, couldn't be Paul because it's, it's inconsistent. But Luke was very, very educated, and so they believe it was Luke. Some say it was Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and, and Hebrews was written to encourage the Jews. Others believe it was Apollos, a man mighty in the scriptures, and, and the grasp of the scriptures for the, from the author is very clear. Whoever wrote Hebrews really understands the scriptures at a very, very deep level. And others say it's Priscilla. Right. Uh, yeah, that's right. I have something there. Uh, I, I think we may, might overlook something in Hebrews. Uh, Paul actually says that he has a lot of reference to Could be Matthew? Matthew is a possibility for the author of Hebrews. And uh, I think it's been said, too, that to understand Hebrews properly is to go back to Leviticus and, and go over Leviticus and then read Hebrews. And, and That's right. Uh, That's right. Yeah. You really have to grasp Leviticus yeah. uh, because it's about the priesthood and the priesthood of Christ. Um, I would say even just the, 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 um, the first five books of the Old Testament you have to understand all of that. In, in fact, the Hebrews makes over a hundred references to the Old Testament. And rather than just being a typical letter, it's more of a sermon. And, and they, I think the term they use is a sermonic letter. Uh, because it, it concludes as a letter, but it starts as a sermon. And I think it's a great example to those of us who do give sermons. As Pastor Murray was saying this morning, we're not to preach our own ideas. And this preacher is constantly referring to the Septuagint, which was the scriptures for the early church. And so the sermon is an expository sermon where it's explaining the Old Testament scriptures. My personal opinion, as I've studied Hebrews, and the more I study it, I'm convinced it's the Apostle Paul who wrote it. I'm at 99.9% right now. And uh, I'll, I'll leave a little margin because nobody knows who wrote it. But they do say that the early manuscripts, when they look at the earliest manuscripts, Hebrews was coupled with the rest of Paul's epistles. It's really the later scholars that have come out to say they don't think it's Paul. But I was looking at my printed Bible, and I saw in there it says the Apostle, the Epistle, the Epistle, of Paul, of the Apostle Paul to the Hebrews. So it's been understood for quite some time that it was Paul, and it's only late, lately with the scholarship that they're beginning to see inconsistencies. I think those inconsistencies can be explained. Number one, the advanced use of Greek language. Paul was very educated, extremely educated, both in the Hebrew traditions as well as the Greek culture, and as well as Greek argumentation. So I don't think that that's difficult to explain. But there is a scripture, if you look in Hebrews 2, 
and verse 3, where he says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. This is the heavyweight proof that the scholars use to say it wasn't Paul who wrote this. Because if he wrote it, he received, whoever the author is is saying that he did not receive the gospel directly from Christ. It was received by those who heard it from Christ. I think understanding that Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles explains this. So the us are the Jews. And the apostles who received the gospel directly from Christ, their job was to bring that gospel to the Jews, including Paul, who resisted it at first. And then once he was converted, yes, Christ gave him the gospel directly to take the, to the Gentiles. But this is an epistle to the Hebrews. So I think this is not as difficult as the scholars are making it seem. The other thing I'll say is, there is no way a Gentile wrote this book. This book has some condemning language for Jews. Some very, very strong language for Jews. And in a sense, it minimizes the whole religion of Judaism. And for if I was a Gentile, standing up in front of a congregation of Jews, or writing to a congregation of Jews, telling them that their religion is nonsense and why, there's no way I would be taken seriously. But the fact that Hebrew, uh, Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews and could speak with this kind of authority and this kind of depth, I think that makes sense. And, and as far as the change in language, Paul is speaking to his own people. Prior to this, all the other epistles are to the Gentiles. So there's a way that he communicates to the Gentiles. When he's talking to his own brethren, it's like, again, it's a Polish, has Polish language, if he's speaking to us in English or writing to us, he's going to write a certain way. If he can write to his own family in, in his own language, whether he's comfortable with, it's going to be very different. So I think the, the challenge that the scholars are putting around Pauline authorship, I'm not seeing it so challenging. I think it really makes sense that Paul wrote the letter. Be that as, as his man, be that what it is, what we are clear about is who it is writing to. And so it is to the Hebrews. And specifically, if you go to Hebrews 13, the end of the book, and verse 22, it says, I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I have, a written, I have written a letter unto you in a few words. So first of all, that phrase, word of exhortation, the same phrase is used in Acts 13, when they are asking Paul if he has a word of exhortation, and he says yes, and he ends up giving them a sermon. So clearly this is a, more of a sermon than just a letter. He goes on to say, Know you that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he comes shortly, I will see you. So this is also evidence that it's Pauline authorship, because Paul and Timothy were partners, and Timothy was his assistant. So he's writing here. And then it says in verse 24, Salute all of them that have the rule over you and all the saints. They of Italy salute you. Grace be with you all. So it appears that these are Hebrews in Rome. So the letter is being written to the Jews in Rome. It's possible that 
they could be somewhere else, and the letter is going to Rome. But the indication is that these are the Hebrews, the Jews in Rome. Okay. So that's we did the title, the author, the audience, and then the context. This letter is written prior to some intense persecution. So the Jewish Christians are about to undergo some very serious persecution. And because of that persecution, they're on the verge of, and some are, apostatizing. They're, they're abandoning the faith and instead reverting back to Judaism. And Judaism was a sanctioned religion. So if you were a Jew in Rome, that religion was authorized, and you were fine to do all your worship. Christianity was not a sanctioned religion. So to avoid the persecution, they're going to deny Christ and go back into Judaism. And this letter is a stern warning, as Deacon Jan was saying, not to go backward, to go forward. You're Hebrews. You know, move on. The theme of the book, also, so I should mention that sacrifices are still being done, performed by the Jews, and the author, I believe it's Paul, refers to these sacrifices. So clearly it has to be before 70 AD when the temple was destroyed and the sacrifices came to an end. And many put it around 64 AD, just before Nero started his intense persecution of the Jews. The theme of the book, the theme and purpose, the theme of the book is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is superior to everything that they have in place currently. He's superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the Aaronic and Levitical priesthoods. He's superior to all the animal sacrifices. He's superior to the Old Covenant. He's superior to the tabernacle. So everything that Judaism holds dear, Jesus Christ supersedes it all. And and he is supreme. And that's the theme of the book. Which I might mention, for those of us who have a background in Worldwide Church of God, I think we have been conditioned to minimize Jesus Christ. And when people praise Jesus Christ, those of us with a Worldwide Church of God background, we get uncomfortable. And when you read the book of Hebrews, it is ridiculous. It is, it is almost obscene to be uncomfortable with the praise of Christ. He is superior. He is supreme. And God exalted him. It's God who has praised him and elevated him. And, and we need to be comfortable with that, that he is God. He is Yahweh. And he is to be praised. And we'll see that as we go through the, the book of Hebrews. So the theme is Christ's superiority, his supremacy, and the purpose is to warn the Jewish Christians not to go backward, not to go back to Judaism, but to remain faithful to Christ, even if it means death. Do not go backwards. Are we okay with the sun, or should we switch sides? Are people uncomfortable? You're okay? Okay. All right. Let's then begin in the book. But let's begin in Hebrews 2. We'll, we'll, we're going to go back to Hebrews 1, but I want to be very clear about the, why Hebrews 1 is written the way it's written. There's, there's, a, there's an objective that... I'm going to say Paul. If I say Paul, forgive me, because 
It's not guaranteed that it's Paul. I'm just so convinced. But if I say Paul, you just hear the author of Hebrews. Okay, but I'll try to say the author. Um, so Hebrews 2 is, is where the, the writer, the author, the apostle is leading to. Hebrews 2 and verse 1. Everything I said in chapter 1, therefore, so I'm leading up to this conclusion. Because of everything I've said, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. So we, we've been taught. We've heard these things. Because of everything that I've said in chapter 1, therefore, we must pay, pay much closer attention to this, lest we drift away. This is something that we have to hold on to and not find ourselves slipping away from. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, so, so many of the messages that God sent to Judah were sent through the angel of the Lord or angels of the Lord, and that mess, those messages proved to be reliable. And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. So you don't mess with the word of God. It came through angels and it was reliable. Anybody who broke the word of God was appropriately punished. If that's the case, and this is a, a form of Greek argumentation, Greek rhetoric, where you start from the lesser and you go to the greater. If this is true, how much more is this true? And this is part of the argument, argumentation that you'll see through Hebrews. So if it's true that dis, uh, disobedience to the word, which was brought by angels, brought just retribution, how shall we Jews escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord himself, and it was attested to us, it was brought to us, by those who heard, us being the Jews. So Paul didn't bring the, the, the gospel to the Jews, he brought it to the Gentiles. But it was brought to the Jews by those who heard, the, the early apostles. So this is the purpose of chapter 1, to get it clear in the minds of the Jewish Christians that this word that has come through Jesus Christ, you better take it seriously. And as much as you uphold the scriptures, those scriptures primarily were brought to us by angels as messengers. This was brought to us by Jesus Christ himself. So let's go back now to chapter 1, knowing where, where, where the author is leading us. He's leading us to this very stern warning that this message came from Christ himself. We must obey it. Hebrews 1 and verse 1. Actually, so just before I begin there, um, any other comments or thoughts on the background uh, before we get started? Okay. Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, and, and uh, Pastor Murray took us all the way back to Adam, which was quite fascinating. Long ago, right from the beginning, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. He didn't speak to everybody. He spoke to our fathers, Hebrews. So we have this special called out relationship with God. And how did he do it? By the prophets. So in many ways, at many times, by the prophets. And uh, Pastor Murray covered this extensively. I just want to touch on a couple of these, these as well. Uh, Genesis 37. Actually, don't, don't turn it I'll just read this quickly. Uh, now, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. That dream came from God. 
So God is communicating in this sense to, to Joseph through dreams. In Numbers, and again, Pastor Murray covered this, he shows that he spoke to Moses directly. Here in Numbers 12, verse 6, he says, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. So he speaks through dreams. Here, he makes himself known in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. So a vision, a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth or face to face. Clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant? So here is another example uh, with Moses. And, and Paul, Paul, or the author, is going to show that Christ is greater than Moses. And the Jews really upheld Moses because God spoke to him directly. And then in Daniel we have another case where uh, another king has a dream. And Daniel is able to interpret that dream. And then in verse 2. So there's all these ways that God speaks to our fathers. It doesn't say speak to the whole world. He speaks to the Hebrew nation through the prophets by these various ways and means at, at various times. But this is now a change in direction. Something is different now. In these last days, so now things have changed. We've come to the end of days. He has spoken to us, same us. It's not now in these last days he's spoken to, to everybody. No, he's spoken to us, the covenant people. All that has changed is the Gentiles have been invited into the covenant. And so Gentiles are now spiritual Hebrews. But the us is the same. He spoke to our fathers. And now, in these last days, he speaks to us how? By his son. And the Jews would understand how profound this is. That God is speaking through his son, his firstborn son. Because the, the son, the firstborn son, has pride of place. He, he, he's the heir. And so now, in these last days, God speaks how? By his very son. Whom he appointed... The heir of all things. So he inherits everything. Through whom also he created the world. Making it clear to them he is the creator. He created everything. Let's go to Luke 20. God speaking through his son. Luke 20, beginning in verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. This is Christ speaking. A man, this is God, planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants. So this would be one of the prophets that God through in many ways at many times spoke through. He sent a servant to the tenants, so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. 
And he sent yet a third. So again, God speaking in many ways at many times to our fathers. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So again, we can the apostle is saying, yes, God spoke in many ways and in many times to our fathers. But how did the fathers receive these messengers? They persecuted them. They resisted it. And now he's bringing the, Jesus Christ himself bringing this out. And they would be familiar with this teaching as Christians. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So Gentiles will be brought in. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Everyone that falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So the Hebrews, the Jewish Christians, are being given a very stern warning here. Not only did your fathers reject all of the messengers that God sent trying to communicate with us, they rejected the son himself. And now you're on the verge of doing the very same thing. Be careful, because whoever falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And that stone, if it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Let's go back to Hebrews 1. And verse 3. Again, Pastor Murray was here this, this afternoon. He is the radiance. He's the brightness of the glory of God. That's what he is. The fact that we would be uncomfortable praising Jesus Christ, it's ridiculous. He is the radiance of the glory of God. That's who he is. And, not only that, he is the exact imprint. The Greek word is character. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The very creator, the sustainer of the universe. Now, after making purification for sins, he sat down. And again, talking, uh, Brother Ray was talking about the, the Levitical priesthood. They were constantly standing because they constantly had work to do after the sacrifices. After Christ's sacrifice... He sat down. The work is done. There's nothing else to do. It's complete. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I think we we sometimes try to uncouple Christ and the Father. And they can't be uncoupled. They're, They're a unit. They are one. Christ and the Father. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And we would kind of read over this because we know angels are important, but they don't figure prominently in our theology. But for the Hebrews, angels figured prominently. And they understood that much of the messages that the fathers received 
they receive through angels. We'll just quickly look at Genesis 22. Genesis 22 and verse 11. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. So their very patriarch Abraham, God communicated to the patriarch through an angel. And then in verse 15, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. And if you look at Exodus 3. Verse 2, Exodus 3 and verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, Moses, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning and yet it was not consumed. So throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Septuagint, if you study it carefully, many, in fact the majority of the times when God is communicating, he's communicating through an angel. And here in Matthew Henry's commentary, he says this. Many Jews had a superstitious or idolatrous respect for angels because they had received the law and other tidings of the divine will by their ministry. They looked upon them as mediators between God and men. And some went so far as to pay them a kind of religious homage or worship. So the Jews really regarded the angels highly. Thus it was necessary that the apostle should insist not only on Christ's being the creator of all things, and therefore of the angels themselves, but as being the risen and exalted Messiah in human nature, to whom angels, authorities, and powers are made subject. To prove this, several passages are brought from the Old Testament on comparing what God there says of the angels with what he says to Christ. The inferiority of the angels to Christ plainly appears. So the author understands, as a, as, a, as a Jew as well, that the angels, the regard they have for the angels, they need to regard Christ much higher. And so this, this is the, where he's heading now to explain to the Jews the nature of the angels. So here in verse 4, he's become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, and this is now quoting the Old Testament, the, the Psalms, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So it's just very, very clear to these Jewish Christians the superiority that Christ has 
over their Judaic understanding. And it's interesting here in verse 8 that it speaks of the son's throne and of his kingdom. And, and coming through the line of Judah, it's appropriate that the son of God is the king as well. But later, Paul has to also prove that he is a legitimate priest as well. And the Jews understand very, very clearly that priesthood is by genetics. And so there has to be proof that he comes through the Levitical line in order for him to be a priest. And, and the, the author is going to deal with that separately. But here it's very clear that he's a king. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. Again, he's quoting the Old Testament, the Psalms. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So right at the outset, sort of the highest authority that the Jewish Christians would have in mind in communicating with, with man would be the angels. And the angels would speak to the prophets, and the prophets would speak to them. And here the, the author is saying, Christ is higher, so much higher than the angels. The angels themselves were created by him, and they worship him. So now think about defecting. Think about what you're doing if you're going to defect from Christ. This is a, a big decision. And again, what we're saying last week as well, today in our theology, if we embrace this philosophy or this thinking that coming into Christianity, we get a push-button Christ, where we can push the button and Christ will give us whatever we want, and, and it's prosperity on top of prosperity. If we should ever face a crisis like the Hebrews were facing, the question is, would we remain firm? Because at, some, at a point later on in the letter, he says, you're starting to get persecuted, I see that, but you haven't resisted yet unto blood. You haven't shed any blood yet. And Christ himself shed everything, shed his life. And we are Christians, we are followers of Christ. So we need to be very clear that this is a commitment that we're making when we say we follow Christ. And there is nothing that we will turn to and, and defect from Christ. So then this leads now into chapter 2. Therefore, because we understand this, how great Christ is, and, and, and that God has always communicated with us. Always. But now, he communicates with us directly through his Son. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Let me uh, stop there and just open it up for comments, questions, a bit of discussion. Brother Ray. Yeah, there seems to be uh, different groups Sometimes it's talking about groups that are uh, committed, and then sometimes it seems like he's talking to groups that are not so committed, and then other groups that are even less committed. Uh, and that can be confusing when you're studying Hebrews, too. In the, in the traditional Protestant world, 
they believe once saved, always saved. And, and Pastor Ramakan gave a great sermon on this topic. And it's actually uploaded. I was, I was late to get it uploaded, but it's up on our, our website now. It's called Once Saved, Always Saved. And just shows from the scriptures that this is a false doctrine. But because the Protestants believe that once you confess Christ, if you say, and I forget what the, I, I accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. The moment you say that, you and it's not by any works, it's by God's election. Because of this doctrine that they have, they have great difficulty reading the book of Hebrews. And the way that they, this, this is a very, very stern warning. It is a very sobering letter. It's scary. It's downright scary. The way that they cope with the sobriety of this book is to say that Paul is speaking to different types of groups here. That... There are Christians who are saved, and then there are Christians who are just among us, but they're not really Christians. And they're the ones that can lose their salvation. But the true committed Christians can never lose their salvation. And so they have to come up with this, this concept of different groups in order to read the book of the Hebrews and hold on to their doctrine of once saved, always saved. Well, I guess we'll start difference between the altar call and I give my heart to Jesus and our uh, total commitment to the waters of baptism and the old man dies and we come out of the waters of baptism we're resurrected with Christ we're actually sitting in heaven at the right hand symbolically it's different sorry say that again it's different <coughs> our commitment to baptism and uh, laying out of hands receiving the Right, but but here in the early church, we're not dealing with altar call. That's that's a perversion that has happened centuries later. Here we're dealing with real Christians, who are dealing with real apostles, who have really been baptized and have really embraced Christ. And the apostle, in the face of this intense persecution that's coming down, we're human beings. Uh, they're now beginning to renege on their commitment and try to escape the persecution. And the apostle here is saying, do not back down. Yes, you might be tortured. Yes, it might be horrendous. But what you've been called to is so much greater than any of that. So you, you go through, whatever you have to go through, go through it. These are real Christians. These are not pretend Christians. And so it's, it's a book to the Hebrews. And again, this concept of speaking to different groups comes from Protestants who want to hold on to the concept of once saved, always saved. Because the language in Hebrews is diametrically opposed to this concept. It tells us very clearly, it's impossible for us. There's no other uh, salvation if we turn our backs on Christ. So we better understand what that means and hold on to our commitment. Okay. Uh, you can go Are you saying um, elders or altars? Sorry. Altar. Altar. Sorry. Okay. So that's why you believe that there's no. Oh, I see what you're saying. That's why he didn't mention. 
mentioned his name at the beginning. Right. Because he knew that the Jewish audience is very hostile right. towards Paul, so he just left it out. But I also believe strongly, whatever you believe, that Paul was the author. Okay, so what you're saying is if he wrote and said, Paul, an apostle to the Gentiles, writing to the Jews, they, they would reject it. Yes, I see. Good point. Very just, good point. Very good point. So I'll right. just add that uh, the, the, the writer, along with that, just wanted to uh, uh, allow people to understand that the Holy Spirit is the one that's actually yes. guiding. Yes, yes. So don't prejudge. Just listen to the content and then decide. Yes. Very good. Very good. All right. Uh, I've got five more things to say. <laughs> uh, yeah, good point. Any other thoughts or comments? Larry? No? Okay. Okay, so we'll, we'll be continuing to study this book. And uh, the theme is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And, and the apostle here, or the author, makes no apologies for how great Christ is. He doesn't say... Jesus Christ is supreme. Oh, but don't forget the Father. He's not insecure about this. God and the Father are one. And he is just really drumming home the supremacy of Christ. And I think if we can embrace this and go into Passover, understanding this supreme being, how he sacrificed himself for us, I think it's going to make for us a much more meaningful, much more profound Passover. And then secondly, the real purpose of the letter is to guard against apostasy. And as Pastor Murray was saying this, this afternoon, if we are very, very clear that God has spoken to us in these last days by his son, we're not going to get tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Anybody who says, God says, we're going to look at the scriptures and see, well, where did he say that? And how does this reconcile with God's word? So we're off to a good start, and uh, very interesting, again, how the sermon today basically introduced the Bible study, which we'll be doing over the next few months. I think Jesus, Jesus Christ clearly wants us to be in this book.